0: Father's Day is just a few weeks away. Get him something unique and unforgettable. David Yerman, America's foremost luxury jewelry brand, was started by a sculptor and a painter. Every D.Y. collection features artistic designs executed with the finest craftsmanship and hand-finished details.
1: The David Yurman Father's Day Campaign celebrates the enduring bond between fathers and their children.
0: David Yurman has curated a variety of necklaces, rings, and bracelets in their online Father's Day shop at davidyerman.com. Whether it's streamlined tag designs, personalized amulet pendants, or a modern take on a classical design like D.Y. Helios, explore heirloom-worthy styles at a variety of price points.
1: There's something for every dad. Modelled by actor Sean Mendes and other brand ambassadors, this is jewelry your father can wear every day. Discover the selection now at davidyearman.com. Happy Saturday. It is June 3rd, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in Provence.
0: And I'm Michael Haney in New York City.
1: And we have two of your airmail editors just here trying to make sense of an ever-complicated world. Hi, Michael.
0: Bonjour, my dear. Oh, my God. (laughs) France? I'm living vicariously through you. That's the least I can do for us today.
1: Okay. I blame the UK educational system. Apparently my children are never in school anymore. So we have to figure out ways to spend the time. So here we are. It's very lovely here, actually. Graydon calls it Lavender Provence, which is different from other parts of Provence. And I think we should trademark that name. Or
0: make it my DJ name.
1: DJ Lavender Provence. I feel like the music would not be especially lively in the case of DJ Lavender Provence.
0: No, very kind of like dreamy and you could be fitting of a certain dreamy cocktail hour.
1: Well, speaking of cocktails, we might be drinking rosé right now, ladies and gentlemen. You'll never know, but we have a very lively show for you today.
0: Yeah, it's officially summer, which means the summer movie blockbusters are coming. But will any of them win an Oscar for Best Picture, as Sam Watson reports? The Gatekeepers in Hollywood just made it a lot harder for any movie to win one of those awards for Best Picture, but he'll tell us why and how. And then, if you're still undecided, unlike Ashley, about your summer escape destination, Catherine Fairweather is here with a great idea for where to go in Greece and the answer may surprise you. And finally, here's a question. How did a once glamorous restaurateur become Putin's most powerful, feared and brutal military commander? Andrew Rivkin will join us with his brilliant report on the rise of the man some called Putin's butcher and tells us if the mercenary leader of the Wagner group is truly out to put Russia's elite on the chopping block. All of which makes for an episode that's not to be missed. Ashley, where would you like to begin? From Lavender District.
1: What? You mean from the high of Lavender Provence, from the epicenter. From the
0: height of Lavender Provence, where would you like to now journey?
1: Let's go to the situation in Russia, because sometimes Putin is receiving more than his fair share of attention. It turns out there are other players in town. And Andrew Rivkin, a contributing writer for AirMail, is here to tell us all about one of them. Welcome, Andrew. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you. Good to be here.
2: Andrew,
0: you have a report this week on Guinea Prigozhin, a man who is seen as a potential rival to Putin's power, who is he and what does he want?
2: Well, Mr. Prigozhin is an interesting man. And the thing with him is it seems that every article that you read about him, it mostly focuses on him being the owner of the Wagner military force, for which obviously he's known for the war in Ukraine, etc. But in the article, I try to explore his past that, in fact, he is a huge real estate developer in St. Petersburg and that his tastes and his demeanor is actually, well, it's that of one New York real estate developer who went on to become the president of the United States. And in that sense, I think Mr. Pergozian. Well, he has all the chances to repeat his American counterpart's path to political glory, so to speak, with the correction that it's in Russia and during a war.
1: Well, tell us a little bit about this military force
2: that he's in charge of. His military force is called the Wagner Group. It's financed by the Russian government. Although of course it denies everything, but it's officially supplied. The weapons are officially supplied by the government. But Ukraine is Wagner's first foray into big time war, so to speak. So their forces, they have a core of professional fighters, estimated five to ten thousand, and these are professional military men, mercenaries. And then there's forty to fifty thousand ex convicts, people who Prigozhin himself hired. In prisons, he flew in in a helicopter right in the middle of the prison yard. We used to give a speech, very passionate speech about how if you want freedom, you come fight for me, you become my storm troops. And that's how Wagner expanded to a force of tens and tens of thousands of people. And that's how they captured the Ukrainian town of Bakhmut. It's been a 10 month fight, if I'm not mistaken, for Bakhmut and Wagner has proven itself to be Russia's most effective military force. Of course, it should be noted that Wagner's key tactic for assaulting the city were the so-called human wave attacks, where barely armed men, these ex-convicts who were promised freedom, they simply charge fortified Ukrainian positions until these positions run out of ammo. Their loss rate, their casualty rate, was staggering. They lost upwards of twenty to 30,000 men. So, essentially, at this point, it's his private army, but one that does fighting for the state.
0: During that siege, he's had some blistering verbal attacks on the incompetence of Russia's military leadership. And he laid into them this week when drones attacked Moscow, saying they were failures. And much like Donald Trump, he's attacked what he calls the elites of society. So what does he want? What's his game? Is he out to destabilize Putin?
2: Prigozhin. <inaudible> feeds on instability. He has a great sense for knowing what people need. His greatest talent isn't that of a military commander, as we can judge by the losses of his Wagner troops. His greatest talent is actually sensing, feeling people and sensing the situation. So now he's clearly showing his political ambitions. What he's doing is he's echoing the very popular sentiment among Russians, that the war should be won. The war is a good thing. Seventy percent of Russians do support the war, but they're divided on the way that it's being carried out. And Prigozhin, he in that sense, he sort of placed himself, he positioned himself as the anti-Putin, if you would see Putin in a bunker somewhere in Moscow wearing a fine suit. Prigozhin would be the guy wearing military fatigues. In Ukrainian field, you could hear how artillery shells are blowing up behind him. In that sense, he's the complete opposite. And for a billionaire, he's Russia's number one anti-establishment candidate. He made his whole political deal in this time of war. To drain the swamp. And his idea of draining the swamp, his reason to drain that swamp in Moscow, all the Nipo babies, the inept military commanders that he constantly criticizes, even Putin himself and his closest circle, he presents them as the people who are losing the war, who are losing Russia's war due to their corruption due to the fact that they're afraid to get hands on, to go into the field and fight. It really is a strange sight, and one that does remind you of Trump, someone who's flying in a private plane, and he's talking about battling the corrupt elites which is exactly what Prigozhin is doing, only considering that Russia at this point is at war. He is doing it accordingly. He is doing it with a gun. And that's his political campaigning right there.
1: Do we believe that there's any chance that he'd be wresting power from Putin? Or are we sort of considering this possibility of his political ascent in the wake of a catastrophic event happening to Putin?
2: I think what he's doing, I do cover it in the article, I think what he's doing is he's building a system that is separate of Putin's Political system. So Prigozhin he has no chance of becoming an official candidate, the successor to Putin, like Dmitry Medvedev became at some point here. Prigozhin is never going to get elected, quote unquote. But what he does have is, and at this point, it's clear if you look at Russian social media, if you look at the popular sentiment, he has the popular vote. In a recent poll, he was the second most trusted politician after Putin. I think it was Putin had 30% approval rating and Prigozhin was second to him, he had two. But in terms of as far as Russian politics go, that speaks of great popular support. So I do think that Prigozhin is the kind of man to take advantage of any situation that might present itself in terms of seizing power. And for a man like that who wants power to have a private army is a huge bonus. It's a huge bonus. And it's a force that he can effectively use inside of Russia. And by my understanding and by talking to a lot of Russians who work in security services, they understand the threat too. And they understand that armed men who are loyal, not to the government, but to this person who tells it like it is, speaks for the people and criticizes the establishment, they are a huge risk to Putin's political system, especially in this time of turmoil.
0: In the past week, he said something akin to, and I'm paraphrasing here, but unless the Russian elite, either rich and powerful, see their kids coming home in coffins or wounded, that and some of this, I'm wondering, is it political sort of talk or does he really believe it where he's saying like, it's 1917 again, where all of a sudden if the Russian army turns against the leadership, that there could be a revolution. Is that Trump-like kind of bluster or is he maybe advocating for something less of a dog whistle, but really sort of a bullhorn?
2: I would say this. In the current state of affairs, that is Russia, a gunshot is a dog whistle. So for him, it's both. It is both bluster and he's very prone to that. He's very much of a troll. He's a brilliant social media troll. It's no wonder that he's the owner of the troll factory. You don't exactly contract this kind of job just to anyone out there. You need the guy who can really do the job. So while it is bluster, it is also a threat, a real one. And I think, as opposed to Trump, as opposed to those who support Trump, as opposed to these various groups, if you take the Proud Boys and the battle-hardened Wagner troops, and you think who of the two has a better chance of storming the Capitol building or the Kremlin, you can clearly see that it's with his troops. So for him, I would say that as his rhetoric is getting more and more militant, an interesting thing here is his rhetoric is much more militant towards the Russian leadership than it is towards Ukraine. With Ukraine, it's entirely different. I do think that He is overtly implying that he might take part in the coming revolution. And he's not the only Russian ultranationalist to do so. He's just the most notable one. And yes, he does have all the chances to make that happen.
1: Okay, Andrew, I'm sorry, we have to gossip for a minute. All these rumors that Putin is terminally ill, is it true, false? Can you just please weigh in on this? We need to know. I
2: think the rumors that he's terminally ill have been circling for years. So far, he's very much alive. What he is, is definitely mentally ill in a very bad way. But in terms of being looking like the kind of guy who's about to die, it's been, what, like three years since these rumors first started to circulate. I remember, I think, that the director, Oliver Stone, said in an interview that Putin was battling cancer. But so far, he's alive and kicking in that sense. Right now, there are rumors of that the Belarusian president, Alexander Lukashenko, I think every other day there's news that he's taken to a hospital, that he looked awful on the red square. But also the next day he comes out with an interview. So I would not trust these rumors too much. And I think with the way that things are going, Putin does not seem like the man who would meet his end in a hospital bed.
1: All right. Well, more does come on this story as it's developing, Andrew. Thank you so much for your marvelous words and your narrative and your take on it. It's fascinating stuff.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Andrew. Take care. Bye. Father's Day is just a few weeks away. Get him something unique and unforgettable. David Yerman, America's foremost luxury jewelry brand, was started by a sculptor and a painter. Every D.Y. collection features artistic designs executed with the finest craftsmanship and hand-finished details.
1: The David Yurman Father's Day campaign celebrates the enduring bond between fathers and their children.
0: David Yurman has curated a variety of necklaces, rings, and bracelets in their online Father's Day shop at davidyurman.com. Whether it's streamlined tag designs, personalized amulet pendants, or a modern take on a classical design like D.Y. Helios, explore heirloom-worthy styles at a variety of price points.
1: There's something for every dad. Modeled by actor Sean Mendes and other brand ambassadors, this is jewelry your father can wear every day. Discover the selection now at davidyerman.com. Great story. Weird guy, great story.
0: Great story and great eye-opener, I think, for someone who's about someone who's just going to continue to, no matter what happens in Ukraine, but he's clear he's making a bid to have a longer, bigger profile in Russia, so... We'll be hearing more as you say about him.
1: All right. So now that we've covered everything in Russia, let's go to sunnier, more bucolic pastures and talk about the situation in Greece. Catherine Fairweather, a travel writer who is based in Somerset in the UK, is here to tell us all about the country of her youth and why it has become what some are calling the new Berlin. Welcome, Catherine.
0: Catherine, you have a long history with Athens. You're not a newcomer. So tell us about your connection to the city and how it gives you a unique perspective on what's happening there now.
3: I grew up in Athens. My grandfather was Greek and they had a country house, a summer house on, the, on what's known as the Athenian Riviera, which is now a suburb of Athens, but then was countryside, sort of near Kalamaki and Glyfada. So we went there for three months of every year. And then when I turned teenager, I decided to go to school there. I was fed up with trailing in my parents' wake around different countries. So I decided to go to school in Athens. So I was there for about three years, at school in Athens, and I ignored it in my adulthood. I just used to pass by on the way to the islands. We've got a little summer house and a never- Paid any attention at all until that concert that I mentioned last year, the Patti Smith concert. Patti Smith was my great sort of heroine in my teens. And we used to spend a lot of time listening to Patti Smith in Athens, actually. And it was bizarre that it was in Athens that I listened again after 30 years, not sort of plugging into Patti Smith, that I heard her again in Athens in this incredible amphitheatre. And The extraordinary thing about that concert was that it was all young people. That was one surprising thing. And I've never seen a more engaged audience in my life. They were standing on the chairs, they were sort of crying, they were howling, they were throwing their scarves in the air, and it was an incredibly emotional experience. And that made me think, wow, I mean, extraordinary. Athens has moved on a lot from The place that I remembered in my teens. And so I went back three times in the last year. That was last June. So I've been back three times since. And I had discovered a completely different city. And yeah, I keep saying. I would buy a house there. (laughs) I know I always want to buy houses in the places that I love, but it's very exciting. There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on on the sort of gastronomic side. There's a lot going on on the design and art side. Lots of young people moving there because Berlin and everywhere else in Europe has become so expensive to live. So there's an influx of artists and writers and it's on the cusp. It feels exciting. So, yeah, I loved it.
1: You speak in your story about how the financial crisis of 2008 sort of exacerbated this artistic roar, so to speak. There was a lot of anger and passion and emotion. How do you feel like that's contributed to the transformation of the city?
3: I think that people, when they are desperate, always turn to art. They look inwards, don't they? It happened in the pandemic in everywhere, but especially in England, actually, where people felt they could only express their anger and anguish and incomprehension through artistic means. And I think it's often the case that when there's a financial crisis, people resort to art as a way of trying to make sense of the incomprehensible. At that time as well, lots of buildings came up, for lease and rent because nobody could afford to keep the rents going. So suddenly there was this sort of rush of amazing spaces that the artistic population could move into for peppercorn rents. So the industrial buildings and many shops and many hotels that had collapsed in that crisis was suddenly filled with these sort of pop-ups, pop-up artists, workshops, and restaurants, pop-up restaurants. And that was the catalyst, I think, for this new wave of cultural energy.
0: I want to get to brass tacks for a second, Catherine. If you say you want to buy a house there, I imagine you've poked around a little bit. What are we talking about for just a modest little second house? What kind of price point are we looking at?
3: I think if you wanted a little neoclassical house in the center of Athens near the Acropolis, you'd probably manage to get something for about... 600,000 sterling.
0: Well, what am I looking at? Euros there.
3: Euros, more or less parity, isn't it? Euros and sterling, I think it's parity at the moment. It's doable. It's not out. And of course, if you're not in the Acropolis area, if you're out in the more gritty areas that I mentioned in the article, then you could probably find a one-bedroom, two-bedroom lofty place for, I not mean, much less but 80, 90, 100,000. Okay, I'm in.
1: Catherine, tell us a little bit, just briefly, what are two or three of your favorite spots in Athens? For anyone who goes, what should we not miss?
3: I think if you want to get the glamorous side of Athens, the women with the stilettos and the hairdos and incredibly dressed to the nines and the, the, the Beaumont, you'd have to go to Athene, which used to be Zonas. Zonas is like the ritz of athens has been around i remember going there with my grandfather so a long long time it's been there since maybe the 50s even the 60s certainly it was around now it's been rechristened athenae and it's a very glamorous place to go to be seen and to go and watch people so i definitely go there the other end of the spectrum um totally off the tourist radar is one of my favourite little tavernas where you can eat for about 10 years ahead. No joking. Wonderful specialities like spanakopita, which is a um, spinach pie. It's called um, platia and that means square. And it's in a little neighborhood, off-radar neighborhood, um, underneath the Acropolis called Petralona, run by a poet and full of interesting people who live in this neighborhood, artists and writers, a neighborhood of stone houses and jazz clubs and bookshops. It's absolutely great. And then I would go to the Athenian Riviera, to the island, if it were the summer, because you need to get out of the centre of Athens and be on the coast. And as you know, Athens is on the coast. And I go to the... It's an incredible beach, probably about... 45 minutes away from the centre of Athens. It's got an amazing restaurant. It turns into a nightclub on weekends. The rest of the time, it's very peaceful, sheltering under the shade of Umbrella Pines. And that would be a great place to just sort of while away a whole day from breakfast through to midnight. And that's called The Island, and it's right on the coast. Those would be my three recommendations. And they would be very different as well.
1: Catherine, you're always going off to some far-flung destination. What's on your list this summer?
3: I am supposed to be going down on the wildest river in Albania called the Eos and it's been made a zone recently by the Albanian government which means it's not going to be dammed so it's been given a bit of attention recently anyway I want to go from source to sea from the sources in the mountains of northern Greece to the Adriatic coast where it ends up it's about 400 kilometers and I'm going to Sardinia next in a couple of weeks to check out the Roman ruins with my husband who is a Fanatic about ruins and then going to Greece. I'm going back to my Greece. (laughs) And then I'm going to Georgia in September.
1: Okay. Well, I think we're going to have a lot to talk about in the months ahead. But until then, we wish you wonderful travels and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you, Ashley.
0: Thank you, Catherine. Safe travels.
1: Thanks. Bye. Ah, we need to go to Athens.
0: Yeah. Boy, it's funny because everyone always goes
1: into Greece
0: through Athens and then quickly escapes or like has one meal there on their way in or out. But great way to rethink your travel plans now
1: okay well now that we've dealt with most important matters of our time i think we should probably move on to hollywood and somewhat arcane new rules that are going to be governing the academy as we move into award season next year sam wasson is here to explain this to us he's the author of several books including the big goodbye chinatown and the last years of hollywood and his next book is the path to paradise francis ford coppola the apocalypse and the dream which will be published by harper in november welcome sam Okay, Sam, after 95 years, the Oscar rules are changing in the best picture category. So first of all, what are these new rules?
4: No, no reasonable person disagrees that values of diversity and inclusion are ideals we should all strive for. Beyond that, they are necessary to a functioning democracy. At the same time, nobody should be telling artists, how to make art. And though the academy denies that these are mandates, they are very sly coercions in that effort to do exactly that. Uh, Let me give you some examples. What, What the academy has set out is what they call four standards, eligibility rules for diversity and inclusion. Here's standard A quit on-screen representation themes and narratives and to satisfy standard a uh, you have to have at least one of the lead actors or significant supporting actors be from an underrepresented racial or ethnic group or at least thirty percent of all actors in secondary and minor roles from at least two underrepresented racial groups or the main storylines themes or narrative of the film, must be centered on an underrepresented group. Like I said, that's just one standard. There are three other standards. One is uh, creative leadership and project team. One is the uh, industry access and opportunities. And standard D is audience development. As you can see, these are very, very arcane, seemingly arbitrary with numbers like 30% to six other crew people, one major story point. This is an attempt to, although the Academy denies it, like I said, coerce people into making art. And as a side note, or maybe not as a side note. It's really put a cloud over professional life here in Hollywood. Just anecdotally, I'm going to dinners with friends, seeing people, talking to them on the phone, people in the movie business. They're exhausted and find this work tedious. It's no longer become about how can I make the best movie? How can I even, in some cases, make the most successful movie? It's how can I thread the needle to make the movie that is least offensive to the powers that be change on the level that we're talking about is done on done with policy and done with political leadership it's not done by paramount so this is a bold and bald gesture of pandering that serves nothing except the academy's own sense of its image in the woke world. No reasonable person is opposed to diversity and inclusivity. We all want the perfect democracy, and we cannot have the perfect democracy without balanced diversity and inclusion. That is absolutely essential, and there need to be people fighting for that in this country and all over the world. But that's not how you make movies. Sam,
0: this mandate, which goes into effect with the Oscars of 2024, right? One of the great little wrinkles that you note is this is only obviously for the best picture, but you say a film can be nominated and even win in every other Oscar category yet would remain
4: ineligible in the best picture category, right? Right. It's such a great point. It shows how corrupt and backward this thing is. So where's this coming from? Why are they doing this? The Academy is scared you're not going to like them anymore. The Academy already knows that movies are in big trouble. No one agrees on the definition of movies anymore. People don't agree on whether or not movies have to be seen in the theater. They don't know if movies are television, if they have their own aesthetic. And Oscar telecasts are down in the ratings, even though they bumped up slightly in this last Oscars. But generally, the trend for Oscar telecasts is down. And the Oscar telecast forms the basis for the the Academy's revenue. So basically the Academy, there's a group of television producers and they produce this show called the Oscars. And they want you to watch. And this is a way to tell you what they perceive to be as the audience that we're still relevant. We are not your grandfather's Academy anymore. We are not just old white men. And this is their concession to that.
0: I think you raise this question in your story is, does a film even get distribution or get made if it doesn't meet these criteria? Is that a possibility here?
4: Right. I mean, there's consequences here beyond merely the Oscars. A lot of times if the producer's pitching a movie, they could help position this movie as an awards movie. That's a way to incentivize studios, financiers. That's a way to get their movie made. So, Now the whole definition of awards movie has changed. A studio could say, well, that movie, we can't make that movie because it doesn't have a space for this type of person. And so it becomes harder and harder for people to make the movies they want to make. And if they make the movie, they may not get distribution because the movie may not satisfy this Oscar criteria. So in a dangerous way, the tale of the Academy could be wagging the dog of production. And again, nothing should be doing that in an art form. Nothing should be doing that except good business sense and talented artistry.
0: Sam, has anyone else in Hollywood publicly come out against it?
4: I think so. But privately, the disgust and the revulsion is unanimous here. In fact, the mandates are so insincere with so many loopholes that I'd be surprised that if even the people who wrote and enforced these mandates believe in them. That's another level of what's so awful about this, is that there are ways to get around this. So it's not even credible as a genuine attempt to enforce diversity and inclusion. So on that level, it's stupid and insincere. People who love the art form are not enemies of diversity and inclusion. What we love more than anything else is the art form. And that's what we want to protect. Those who love the fight for diversity and inclusion. We want that fight won. We just want them to fight it where it needs to be fought in terms of society and policy. Think about how incestuous and corrupt this is. The Academy is coercing people into what movies are eligible and then voting on which ones win the Oscar. It's one or the other folks.
1: Well, it's a great story, Sam, and a really provocative take, and we thank you so much for it. Thanks, guys. Okay, well, Michael, speaking of movies, I know that Succession's done, we've lost all reason to live, but do you have anything at all you could recommend to fill the void?
0: Oh, Succession has come and gone. I'll be forming a support group this weekend for those who need to talk about it. I do have one, and it's not a TV show. It's not a movie. I'm taking a little more inspiration from Ashley, and this is a theater one. Can I give you a theater one for the week? Tony Awards are coming up here.
1: Always, darling.
0: Okay, but you were a big fan of Killing Eve, right? I feel seen. Well, then you need to get back to New York and see Jodie Comer, who played Villanelle, the assassin in that show. She's on Broadway right now in a one-woman show called Prima Facie. Have you heard about it?
1: Everyone's talking about this.
0: It's a one-woman show. She's on stage for about 110 minutes, only herself. And she comes, it is like a locomotive of a performance. It just leaves your jaw on the floor. She plays this young British barrister who's carved out this successful practice defending men from sexual assault charges, but then has her own life up end it when a colleague assaults her one night and it's got to be one of the best performances you'll see in a long time she shifts voices in it shifts perspectives and she is beyond vulnerable and by the end she's sort of stripped away every last piece of her armor that she's got and delivers this as i say unforgettable performance that just pulls you in and keeps you with her through this blistering performance so it's called prima facie it's at the Golden Theater here at Golden Theater here in New York for the next few, 5 or 6 weeks so i would highly encourage everyone to see it. It's a landmark performance.
1: Marvelous. Sounds great. And you, my dear. All right. Well, this is a bit self-promotional, but whatever. What? This is a touch self-promotional, but we have a new issue of Airmail Lookout this weekend. Everyone must read it. You will love it, love it, love it. I promise. Airmail.news backslash look, but this is our monthly magazine that casts a gimlet eye on the universe of beauty and wellness. It is new, it is hot, and it is unmissable. We have lots of great stories. We've got the Miracle Working New skincare product, even for people who don't believe in miracles. We have a fascinating essay on mother-daughter diets, which is as contrarian and interesting as it sounds. The new plastic surgery trend, hint, it's all about the eyes. Are you familiar with this? Fascinating stuff. We've got stories on crazy rich brides. We've got plenty of beauty products to shop. We even have a very contrarian essay by Alexander Shulman about her take on wellness after having had cancer and how it's evolved or hasn't. So anyway, lots of good things to read, but you should definitely spend some time with Airmail Look this weekend. Airmail.news backslash look.
0: Perfect. Perfect, perfect, right?
1: Marvelous. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. We wish you all a wonderful weekend. And we'd like to thank our sponsor for this episode, David Yerman. And we wish you a lovely day. Michael, would you please read us out?
0: Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Air Mail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe. It's Spotify or Apple Music, but most of all, thank you again for joining us.